Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Well, we have one of our favorite guests returning today, local author Kirby Larson. Kirby is an award-winning author of children's and young adult books. It's just so nice to count you as a member of the Northwest community. Kirby, uh, welcome. Thanks for coming back for a visit. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. All of that good stuff. Thank you, Gary. I love being with you. Thanks a lot for having me back. Well, I love to have you because I love to hear you tell stories. And, you, you know, you write such great books, but you tell good stories about writing the books and about what books mean to people and and kids and just I mean you write for I guess you're called a children's author but actually I enjoy all the books you've (laughs) written Uh, I think when a book is well written anybody everybody can enjoy it do you do you like those labels? I don't know. I don't. I, I don't. I, I know. I understand why we have those labels. You know, when grandma goes to the store to pick out a book for yeah, her. Yeah, there's different sections in there. Right. But um, you, what you just said exactly echoes a favorite quote of mine uh, from C.S. Lewis. Oh, yes. Who says, I'm paraphrasing, but says that a book that is only, a children's book that is only enjoyed by a child is not a very good children's book. And I think... Almost every book that's written is struggling with big themes in life. You know, how to be a good person, how to be a better friend, whatever that theme might be. And there is almost always in every book something that will speak to you as an 8-year-old. But when you read the book as a 48-year-old or whatever, you'll get meaning out of that in a different way because of life experiences. So I I think some people almost confess to me in embarrassed that they read middle grade novels and I say good for you that's <laughs> fabulous you're reading a really rich genre of literature you know uh, you mentioned C.S. Lewis so The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and mm-hmm. the uh, <laughs> Narnia yeah right the Narnia Chronicles so they made a big big movie or two of those uh, in the last I don't know eight ten years or less and that, those, you know, as a kid, again, were on my list. Of, oh, yeah, I got to get around to reading those because a lot of people have said, and I never did. But my daughter, one of my daughters, loves to read, and she read those again, and especially in expectation of those movies coming out. So then I read them. I go, wow, these are really great. Uh, uh, yeah, I read the whole series. I think there's 10 of them or something, yeah. and they're wonderful. They're not children's literature. I mean, guess they are, but they're exciting and fun and and you've got a, a book here liberty this is a another book that stars a dog we've got a dog right on the front we see his owner but only kind of half in in and i think if i look back dash was one you wrote a couple years ago mm-hmm. about a, a little girl who lived in seattle uh, a japanese girl who got interned uh during world war ii we saw a little bit of her but mostly the dog on mm-hmm. the cover and before that, a story, another dog that went to war, Duke. Right. We saw him on the cover, but not really. We saw part of his own or something. So, okay, Kirby, the dogs uh, in your books and stories, what's the deal of it? Because you didn't used to write that way. Well, true, very true. I have this passion for historical fiction, and I think it's really important for all of us to understand where we've come from so we can be better prepared for moving forward into the future. So. I really want to find ways to connect stories from the past with today's readers. And I learned almost by sheer serendipity that kids connect to animals and especially dogs. And so this World War II dog series that that Liberty is the third title in, each one, they're all home front stories, each one features a different child and a dog in his or her life. And I love that you don't really see the children in the stories on the covers because I think kids like to imagine themselves as the characters in my books. 
But it is really important to me. I'm so glad that they have photos of the dogs on the cover because I do. I go to PetFinder.com and I find <laughs> um, a model for my dog characters and I have that photo right next to my computer as I'm writing. So I can really envision, you know, the size of the dog in proportion to the child, uh, you know, what that dog would look like curled up on the bed or on the floor at the kid's feet. Are there dog models? Did I hear you say there that? There are. This, so I I'm going to tell you this really I... funny story. So you connected with the dog on the cover of Liberty because he re- very much resembles your dog. Exactly. And I had picked out a dog, who female dog, um, named Tess from Petfinder, a hound, and actually was called a cur hound, which I had never heard of before. A beautiful hunting dog. This story is set in the south in um, New Orleans, and so I thought that would be an appropriate dog. Everything fine and good, and then it's time for Scholastic, my publisher, to have the photo shoot for the book cover. And I get a call from my editor saying they cannot find a hound that resembles my hound anywhere in New York City. Uh, Oh, come on. (laughs) No. Well, and the trick is they have to find a dog that is trained, uh, is signed off for working with children. So there probably are hounds, but they don't have their credentials for working with kids, like kid models. (laughs) Right. And so she asked me in the phone call if a beagle would be okay. And nothing against people who own or love beagles, but a beagle is a totally different dog than the dog I had envisioned. And so I, I begged her, please, could you just look a little bit longer? And thankfully, after another couple of weeks, they did find a dog that met all the qualifications. And it's a stunning dog. It's another beautiful cover. <laughs> and I like the fact, so we see on the cover um, part of the boy and part of the girl, his neighbor in there. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start up, you know, talking about the book yeah. uh, the boy comes from Seattle, moves mm-hmm. to New Orleans during World War II. Is it, I guess that's pre-the book opens. He's already has moved. Yes. Uh, he's had polio. The girl is black. Uh, that's new to him to watch uh, segregation in the mm-hmm. South. And he's got to fight like bullies in his uh, school about because he limps with his uh, polio. And he wants, and there's this dog in the neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's a lot of the scene setting, I guess. <laughs> um So uh, as you write historical fiction, all those things, um, if a kid's going to read that now, uh, uh, I don't know, anywhere from 8 to 15 that Mm -hmm. says, no, wait a minute, uh, polio, I'm not sure what that is. I think I've heard of it. Uh, Segregation, she can't stand in the same line to get drinking water as him. That sounds odd to me, unless they've really learned about stuff. When you write historical fiction... Um, there's so much you could keep going. I mean, it, you could make it history and less fiction. Where do you? How do you draw the line and say I can't go this far in because it's losing track of the story or whatever? I don't know. Right. That is such a good question, and it is one I struggle with all the time. Which is why I have a very trusted first reader who reads everything for me before it even goes to my editor, and she's the one who tells me this is beginning to sound like a history textbook and not a story. So. Really what I try so very hard to do is uh, focus on details that help me tell my main character's story. And one of the reasons that I had Fish move from... His name is Fish Elliot, by the way, the main character. The reason I had him move from Seattle to New Orleans is that I I knew I was going to set the story there. I'm not from New Orleans. It's a very unique and particular culture. And I was worried that I wouldn't be able to portray it accurately if I tried to write as if... 
uh, from a character's point of view who had grown up there because there's just a lot of subtleties. And so I decided I would make my character truly a fish out of water and so plunk him from the northwest into the south. So I was able to show a lot of things through his eyes, not with commentary per se, always, but uh, show the differences that he noticed. And that and allowed me to deal with things like um, the the race uh, relations, which was so fascinating because there were neighborhoods that were integrated, but the kids still went to different schools. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the economic uh, abilities of the people in those neighborhoods. You know, the poor neighborhoods tended to have that that mix. But it was just fascinating to me that you could be living next door to someone and they would go to a different school than you simply because of the color of their skin. And I thought that would be interesting to fish as well. And, you know, I like that. <clears throat> Speaking of uh, appealing to all ages, my mother, who's in her 80s, uh, I gave her your last book, uh, Dash, as she read it. And this one, too, it just brings back things, people like me that are just old enough to know the references like um, uh, Barbasol. And you, see, I think you'd uh, shave in a haircut. Yeah. You, somebody knocks that way, and you go, what does that mean? So do you kind of write those kind of things? And like uh, the word for a sidewalk in New Orleans is, is you know, I had to look a few things up yeah. on Wikipedia. Is that kind of, I, I'm writing to middle schoolers, let them learn a little here, force them to kind of? That's exactly what I feel like. I, I do try to set context. <clears throat> so if a kid is reading and caught up in the story, doesn't want to take a break to go look up exactly. that word or what the reference, they don't have to. They can still get the sense of the story. But I don't know about you, but that is how I grew my vocabulary as a kid. I would encounter a word maybe the first time. I would just sort of skip over it or do my best to figure it out. But as, as I saw it another time and another time, I began to, you know, ground myself in what that word meant and, and add that to my vocabulary. And I think we do kids a disservice if we stop and try to explain everything in a story to them, they're smart and they can figure stuff out by the context or they can go look it up or ask a grandma and grandpa. It's my one of my dad's favorite phrases, look it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, dad, what does so-and-so mean? Look it up. Exactly. You know, there's a dictionary over there. Now every kid has a, at their fingertips if they have a phone or right. a computer. Look it up. Uh, well, we're talking with Kirby Larson about her new book, Liberty. It's historical fiction, takes place during World War II in New Orleans. And one of the other things I love about this book, I know a little bit about uh, New Orleans and World War II only because I'm sort of a, a history buff. But how about you, as you did research, did you know enough about why, you know, there's a World War II National Museum in New Orleans, and it kind of ties into why your story right. takes place there, and Higgins, and who this man was, and it's just cool. What, what you know, as you started writing and researching, did you find out about either World War II, New Orleans, this man Higgins? What happened was, actually, my so Duke and Dash, the first two books, were doing really well. And my editor came to me and asked if I had other ideas for books. And we would make it a longer series. And when your editor asks you that question, you always say yes. <laughs> Good. Even if the answer is no, you say yes. So, um, luckily, I was either on my way or I just come back from the American Library Association convention in New Orleans and I'd had a couple of hours that I spent in the World War II Museum there. I had never heard of Andrew Jackson Higgins uh, who owned the industry, Higgins Industries. I had heard the phrase Higgins Boats before but I didn't realize, I didn't connect it to a person. Andrew Jackson Higgins was a fascinating man, as you can imagine by his name. He was larger than life. He drank like a fifth of whiskey every day. <laughs> he had very uh, colorful vocabulary, and he 
just if someone told him he couldn't do something, he was determined to do that thing all the more. And with his little boatyard built thousands of ships for the Navy. And I just thought he was fascinating. And plus, the idea of setting a story in New Orleans, I, it just seemed like a great idea. So I put, um, pitched it to my editor. She said yes. Then I hung up the phone and I thought, I write books for kids. How am I going to write about this really, you know, bigger than life character? And so I do what I always do when I get when I have an inkling of an idea that I think I really want to run with, I began to do research. And uh, that led me to creating um, the scenes with the Higgins Industries, but I had to have a way for my young middle grade character to be in there. So it turns out his sister works for Mr. Higgins. My character is an inventor like Mr. Higgins. In fact, one of his inventions helps solve a problem that Mr. Higgins has been dealing with, which is inspired by an actual event, not that a child created the invention, but the invention that's created out of a cigar box really did help the Higgins Industries figure out how to create the problem they had with the ramps, lowering the ramps. Yeah, these on were those the boats. landing boats mm-hmm. that, like for amphibious invasions, exactly. like D-Day. Exactly. Yeah. So if you watch any old World War II movies, those uh, crafts, those ships that are coming from the bigger ships, landing the equipment and the soldiers on the beach, almost all of them are Higgins boats, which boggled my mind that this small, one small company could have had such an impact on the war. In fact, Dwight Eisenhower said that uh, Higgins Industry made the boat that won the war for us. Another cool thing about this uh, story that People, again, I, I kind of thought as I read this, oh, I, I guess I've heard of that as part of World War II history. There were POWs here in America that were captured in Europe or Africa and sent here for the, to serve out their prison term. And we see a character here, right? Mm-hmm. Over 40,000 of them. And I have to tell you, so the character Eric is 18, turns 18 when he's uh, captured. He is based on a, an actual person, Um and when I learned that there were prisoners of war not only housed in Louisiana, not only housed in New Orleans, but housed at a camp that was directly across the Industrial Canal from the Higgins Industries, it boggled my mind. Now that, wow. I know. We have them right there. Um, and I, I really felt that these the stories of this young boy, Fish, and this POW, Eric, could intertwine. And I have to tell you, my first reader actually advised me to um, take Eric out of the story. And I tried that, and the story, I lost all sense of the heart. And so I knew, is I maybe didn't have the right way to do it yet, but I knew Eric had to be part of the story. And in the end, he turns out to be a critical part of the story and makes a, a decision for that impacts his own future as well as Fish's. The, uh, the character, so as you write a book like this that is fiction, but you're, you're telling a story that is part of history, there, you use this character, Eric, uh, in flashbacks, sort of, uh, and it, it's like totally separate. All of a sudden, we're in a new chapter, and it's Eric, and he's either been captured in North Africa, or we see his scene, and he's thinking back to his family. Is that uh, a tool that you think, okay, only a certain age group all of a sudden can figure this out, or as a writer... And when you work with an editor, do they say, uh, this isn't going to sell to seven-year-olds, so let's make the whole book for older people? Or I don't know. Does, yeah, does that you discussion know, honestly, get- I didn't have that conversation. I, I'm not saying that that conversation doesn't happen about books. But one thing that my publisher, my editor did do is the font for Eric's story is different than the font yes. for Fish's story. So you are 
um, you know, visually reminded that this is a different character. Yeah, we're and, physically in a different place all of a sudden. And the language is a little older. If you if you go back and think about it, it's a little more formal, maybe I should say, than the language in the fish chapters. So I try to give kids clues. There will be kids who might be confused by that, but again, um, maybe that's not the right book for them at that time. So I, I, I don't think about it too much. I just think about how I can best tell the story that my heart wants me to tell. We are talking with Kirby Larson this morning. She's the author of a new book called Liberty, and you can look up uh, this book as well as uh, other Kirby Larson books on her website. It's just kirbylarson.com, right? Very easy. Larson spelled L-A-R-S-O-N, kirbylarson.com. Several in that genre, like we're talking these World War II with dogs, were Duke, Dash, and now Liberty. And uh, you've written other books, other historical fiction books. Mm-hmm. You wrote other books that were not historical fiction at all. Matter of fact, you've got a you're starting a series, right? Uh, a, a character named Audacity, right? Yeah, or Audacity Audie? Jones. Audacity. Yes, Audacity to her friends. She's a lives in a, a wayward home for girls yes. or something and, like and that. And those of us of a certain age have to let go of our um, interpretation of wayward girl. This is this is these <laughs> okay. are this these takes are, place a long time yes, ago. Yes, it does. It okay. takes place in 1910. And this character actually came knocking on my brain um, <laughs> and demanding a story of her own. And she was dressed like Jane and Mary Poppins, so I knew she was from a time past. Um, I saw her on the floor reading a book in front of a grand fireplace, and that was about all I knew about her. So I wrote about five or ten pages to kind of figure out who she was, but I had no idea where she fit. And... I had finished a project, and often when I finish a project and I'm not sure what to do next, I read historical newspapers. I know it sounds weird. No, but I'd have, everybody <laughs> does that. We go to get newspapers from 1915 and start well, reading. So I, I don't even know why, but I wondered to myself, what happened on January 1st, 1910? <laughs> kind of a nice round number. And so I went to the historical New York Times, and the headlines from that day were screaming that President Taft's niece had been kidnapped. And I thought, oh my gosh, I had never heard that story. What a fabulous story that could be. All excited that I had a good story idea. I flipped the paper to January 2nd, and it turned out the niece had not been kidnapped after all, but had missed a train, Um, (laughs) you know, in the days before cell phones. But she was only 13, and I began to think about what I call my favorite writer's tool, which is the question, what if? And I said, okay, Kirby, what if, uh, her name was Dorothy, Dorothy really had been kidnapped, who would rescue her? Of course, an intrepid orphan named Audacity Jones. And so with some help from some newfound friends and some library books, Audacity does help thwart the kidnappers. And I had a lot of fun writing that story. And the second in the series comes out in the new year, at the end of January. And what's that one going to be called? It's called Audacity Jones Steals the Show. Steals the Show. So the other right. one was Rescues the Day? Audacity that... Jones to the Rescue. To the Rescue, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah. And the second the book, she gets to meet and help Houdini. So that should be fun for some magic fans out there. Uh, that will be fun. So as you right now, as you go, um, what was the, the other series... I'll say series. They were a few years apart, uh, Hattie Big Sky oh, mm-hmm. and Hattie Ever After, right? So, mm-hmm. again, around the turn of the 20th century, just right, after, right? Were, was that the first time you started writing historical fiction and dug in and said, ah, there's a lot of stories, or a lot of ways to write great characters with 
history. That one was based on your actual real past, wasn't it? Well, inspired by my great-grandmother, yes. Hattie Big Sky, the first um, novel in <clears throat> that uh, first historical novel that I wrote. And honestly, I never really cared for history, but that's because when I was taught, we were taught to memorize dates and places and yeah. whatever, and I could never remember all that. Um, when I learned that my there was a possibility that my great-grandmother might have homesteaded all by herself in 1914 in eastern Montana, my four-foot-eleven great-grandmother, I should say, I found it hard to believe, and I wanted to see if it was true. And so I did the research and did uncover her homestead documents, which led me to want to know more about homesteading in that time period. And one thing led to another, and I realized that history is about people like you and me, and now there's nothing I want more than to tell stories from the past, especially stories that people aren't as familiar with. Well, that's what I... That's what I sort of paused and thought about when reading Liberty when I got to the part about FDR because people gloss over now that he had polio and he just <laughs> that didn't stop him in his life as a matter of fact he didn't talk about it much the way the way the press was then uh, they but, hit it very carefully yeah yes. yeah but um, he and a uh, uh, fish have something in common exactly. and so he looks up to FDR even though he you know. In those days, we'd say you're crippled. You know, you yeah. you can't do anything. Just mm-hmm. stay at home, or just you know, go to a special school or something. He doesn't give up because he kind of looks up to FDR exactly. and, and bases of what did FDR had a couple of quotes about you know that drive him on uh, forward, et cetera. Right. Right. Uh, and also the the way you can can you use historical fiction, the setting of history, because we kind of know what's going to happen. You can tugging at a heartstring. You can find the motion because you know where we're going eventually, but we're along for the ride and we want to go there with you. I'm thinking of a scene in Liberty now. Maybe this is kind of I'm going sideways here, but I'm talking about emotion. And there's a scene where Fish and I think Olympia's with him sees someone get a telegram delivered to their front door mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden I realized in some of the movies, you mentioned World War II movies, oh, this was a big, big part of life during those right. four years. And uh, you mentioned there's blue star and gold right. stars right. hung on people's windows right. and porches. This is um, a way to really get at people, especially if they stop and look, or if this is used in school as both history, social studies, and English or something. Do teachers use that, by the way? Use a book like this? Yes, absolutely, okay, yeah. Because, man, there's a lot of lessons in history and life taught right there. Exactly. And what I try to do is take those smaller moments and bring them, um, bring them fully to life on the page for the child reader who doesn't have necessarily the context about the blue star flags and the gold star flags or what a telegram might mean. Because Fish sees firsthand how the news that's delivered in that telegram impacts some neighbors of his. So I, I, you know, it's like you um, drill down to the, to the small thing to get the big impact. It, it's a little hard to explain, but it's. Uh, I, I just heard a quote, and not to be a downer, but I just heard a quote on the way here, um, thinking about September 11th, that it wasn't that 3,000-some people died. It was that one person died 3,000 times. So we it's hard for us to connect to the fact that so many people lost their lives in World War II, but when we see one person's family impacted by that loss, boy, it hits, 
it really stays with us. Wow, it, it does, and especially it's back then, it was everybody on every block knew it's, somebody. If it wasn't in your own family, you exactly. knew the neighbor across exactly. the street, or you could see that right. they hung a gold star all right. of a sudden. Yeah. As you write, do you say, oh, I'm going to get people to cry on this page? No, no. Uh, you know what? <laughs> because you, you're, you're able to do that then you're, in some you're of your you're books. you're manipulating the reader. Um, and I've actually found that if you leave some things out, if you don't tell them everything, it gives people more opportunity to come to the story with their full heart. Whereas if you dictate what they should be feeling at each moment, you, you're telling them how to feel rather than allowing them to really feel fully in the story. So I, I, um, I'm not going to say I don't cry when I'm writing. Sometimes I do. But if I feel too, too weepy or, too, or laughing too hard, I'm, that's usually a clue to myself that I've gotten a little schmaltzy or something and I need to pull back because, you know, the magic about reading is that we, uh, I can send my book out, but I can't, I have no control however it's, you know, how a reader is going to respond to it. And I need to leave that reader space for, to make their own magic with the story. So I, I try very hard not to, you know, not to make... Not feelings to, you overly. Manipulate. You said manipulate. Exactly. You don't manipulate. Yeah. But man, try not to. Uh, anyway. Yeah, you can make us laugh and cry in these books. Uh, Kirby Larson, we're talking to. And if folks, okay, it's Christmas, it's New Year's. If you didn't get this book under your tree, <laughs> go out with the gift card that you did get and, and find Liberty by Kirby Larson, Newberry Honor, a winning author. Um, again, online, kirbylarson.com, but all over Amazon, right? Easy to yeah. find. KirbyLarson.com, L-A-R-S-O-N. And again, what's so, as you, we're going to have to wrap this up Mm -hmm. soon, Kirby. As you look ahead, as we talked about Audacity Jones coming out soon, and and Liberty has just hit the bookstores a couple of months ago. How far in advance does a writer look? I mean, you have to wait for the idea, right? Or Uh, do you have to plot out, okay, I will have this many books, because you guys sign contracts, right? Yes, I have one more book in the World War II uh, dog series, and it's called Bear, and I'm actually finishing it right now. uh, I missed my first deadline. (laughs) So it's going to come out in the spring of 2018. And then after that, I honestly, I'm not under contract for a book, and it's a really refreshing feeling because I I just, I'm ready to try something different, a story that's not set in World War II. I don't know what it's going to be yet, and I don't even like to talk about the little baby ideas that are floating around in my head, but it's such a great feeling for me as a writer to feel like anything is possible, and now is the time for me to just let it all filter in, and I trust myself enough to know that I'm going to be able to put the things that are really tugging at my heart together somehow in a story, and that's the most rewarding thing of all. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. Um, is That's kind of like the um, advice. I mean, people must come to you, oh, what do you tell my daughter she wants to write? Yeah. Though those You said little snippets and things are telling me what to talk about and what to write. Yeah. That's the genuine emotion or article or inspiration I think so athletes, you know, build up their muscles, their biceps or their legs or whatever their their sport. Writers build up their observation muscle. And so whenever I'm doing research for anything or even when I'm out and about, I'm always gleaning ideas just and maybe idea isn't even the right word. I, I just I'm I guess I'm thinking of a white Christmas. I'm thinking of like they're like little snowflakes that sort of build up in your brain. And sometimes it's too mushy and you can't build the snowman out of it, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and sometimes it's cold and crisp and you can. And I just you as a writer you have to trust yourself that you know, if you open yourself up to these ideas, 
you're going to find a way to pull them together and give a story to your readers. Super. Hey, let, let's end it there, Kirby, because we have run out of time now. Thanks, Thank you so Carrie. much for coming in. We have been talking today with Kirby Larson, author of the new book, Liberty, and again, soon to come out another Audacity Jones book, Audacity... Steals the show. Steals the show. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks for coming in today and spending time with us. A bigger thanks for uh, entertaining us and, and our families with such heartwarming stories over the years. Thank you, Kirby Gary, Larson. it's an honor. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas and Happy Christmas. New Year. All the best to you in the New Year. Thank thanks. you so much. I am Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community. I'm Kate Daniels. Gary Tobbs is a science journalist and author. His interest has been drawn to health topics and the things that impact our having good health. His newest adventure and research has been on sugar, that sweet, sweet thing that is the downfall of many and the seriousness of our health crisis that we are facing. Gary explores this in his new book, The Case Against Sugar. This is critically important to us, and I am pleased that Gary joins us today to stimulate our thinking on this important topic. Gary Tobbs, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning and for all the wonderful work that you provide into our lives. Well, thank you for having me, Kate. I am really looking forward to this opportunity because this is not necessarily a new subject to me on the case of sugar, but it may be to some people, and I think this is probably prime time to really be addressing the topic once again from the uh, view of your new book, The Case Against Sugar. And this might instill some fear in uh, a certain part of our population, mightn't it? Uh, it might, yes. Um, well, that's... You know, what I say in the beginning of this book is it's more or less, if this were a legal case, this would be the prosecution's argument for the damage that sugar could be doing, not just our population, sugar consumption, not just our population, but worldwide. So I make a pretty strong argument. I do try to acknowledge where the data um, aren't as clear as one would wish, which is virtually everywhere in this particular case. But, yeah, I, I will probably have the effect of scaring some people into staying away from sugar. And hopefully that is definitely the case. That is really the case for probably the majority of us, because one of the things we do know is sugar is insidious. You read the labels, and they have all these funny names, but sugar invariably is in most of the processed foods that we would pick up off the shelf. Yeah, virtually everything in the middle aisles of the supermarket that uh, comes in in any kind of packaging or box or, uh, I mean, with the exception of bottled water, virtually everything has some kind of sugar in it to different degrees. And one of the stories I try to tell in this book is the history of how we got to this point where sugar just completely saturated our diet because it's on a humankind scale. It's a brand new phenomenon. It dates back a couple hundred years, and it's not until the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century that sugar becomes cheap enough and that it kind of explodes. And, you know, if you think about it, there's all these industries that were founded in the 19th century. So the candy industry, the chocolate industry, the soft drink industry, and then um, the uh, chocolate industry, the ice cream. Uh, prior to about 1850, people just didn't eat these foods. 
They didn't exist. I mean, prior to the 1960s, the idea of eating sugared cereal, or 1950s sugared cereals were, were virtually non-existent. And so, you know, it's like our whole entire diet from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep was transformed into dessert over the course of 150 years. And then we have these obesity and diabetes epidemics that are worldwide. And every, every population that eats a Western diet like we eat eventually experiences these explosive increases in obesity and diabetes. And somehow our public health authorities sort of decided to blame it on everything but sugar which is also part of this kind of crazy story I tell, how this prime suspect in these two disorders was always kind of vaguely thought of as something we shouldn't eat, maybe. It should be a treat, you know. You should, clearly shouldn't let your kids have everything they want. You should ration their sugar. But that's the worst we would ever say about it. And so that this book was written to kind of try and put that whole story in perspective and direct the arguments that come in the right direction, to what I think is the right direction. And that is that we need to be aware of how really deadly this much sugar consumption, I mean, it's huge, the amount, the poundage that any of us consumes in a given year. And so here, as we begin a new year, we might consider that wanting to at least cut it uh, in half, if, if not even, of course, more so than that. Well, and that's the question. Um, you know, we got to the point, sugar consumption, and by sugar, just to clarify, virtually everything in this story needs to be clarified. It's so difficult to talk about it without confusing. I don't know if you remember about 10 years ago, everybody was blaming high fructose corn syrup for obesity and the obesity epidemic. And, you know, high fructose corn syrup is just another variation of sugar, what we think of as sugar, which is... A variation, two carbohydrates called glucose and fructose that are bonded together in a sugar molecule and are, are free-floating in high fructose corn syrup. But these, the FDA calls them all caloric sweeteners because they have calories in them and the fructose makes them sweet. And by 1999, we were, the, the food industry was supplying about 153 pounds of this stuff per person in the United States. So every for every single individual, the, from babies on to centenarians, the food industry was producing 150-some-odd pounds of sugar. It's come down since then, which is a good thing. We Right around 1998-99 was when we really became aware that we had an obesity epidemic on our hands. And that awareness, I think, has contributed to this slow decrease in sugar consumption. But it's a simply unprecedented number. I mean, again, if you go back to, say, 1810, the number is going to be around 10 pounds per capita per year. So basically, we're consuming in two weeks, or one week, what we consumed, two weeks, what we consumed in an entire year 200 years ago. And like I said, doing it in an entirely different size. So clearly you can make the argument that, I mean, clearly we should consume less of it. I mean, it's just, it's a, even if it's, well, if it's harmless, then it gets complicated. It is. It gets complicated, but 
but it's not really harmless because while the medical profession isn't necessarily going to say it's directly contributing to diabetes and obesity, I think the logic is just there. Well, this is what's so twisted about this story. Nutrition and obesity researchers will tell you that we get fat merely because we eat too much. Okay, this is you know, people will say calories in, calories out. The more calories, you can, if you consume more calories than you expend, that's what makes you fat. And a, a implication of this is that a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. That's a, a mantra of the obesity nutrition research community. When I wrote my first book on this subject 2000, back in 2007, Good Calories, Bad Calories, the New York Times health reporter who reviewed it for the New York Times book review criticized the book because she said it's clearly been demonstrated over the years that a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. So if this is true, then, okay, sugar is empty calories. It doesn't have any vitamins and minerals attached, but other than that, it can't be any more harmful than any other food. And the sugar industry has used this in its defense actively since the 1950s at least. So they'll say there is no such thing as a fattening food or reducing food. It's all about calories and there's nothing unique about sugar calories and this is the conventional thinking. So as far as the nutrition and obesity research community is concerned, the only problem with sugar is that we consume too much of it and they can't really define too much. You can only define too much if you're you know, obese or diabetic or you've got sugar coming out your ears. One of the points I make in this book, okay, I'm I'm not a physician, I don't have a doctorate, I am an investigative science journalist, and I got into the nutrition field in the late 90s because the science seems so questionable, and I've been in it ever since. So one of the points I make in this book is that this idea that a a calorie is a calorie is almost incomprehensibly naive. So researchers have known for a hundred odd years that we metabolize fats differently than carbohydrates and differently than protein. And we know that obesity is very closely associated with this type of diabetes we call type 2 diabetes. And diabetes specialists know beyond a shadow of a doubt that proteins, fats, and carbohydrates are all metabolized differently and they have to have different effects on insulin and these hormones that, you know, we have to worry about when you have diabetes. And yet when it comes to obesity, the story is supposedly a calorie is a calorie. And one of the things I'm trying to fix in this book, if such a thing is possible, is to get people to realize that this isn't the case and that you should actually expect the calories of sugar to, at the, certainly at the level we consume them, to have a metabolic effect it's very different from other carbohydrates and there's a pathway, a mechanism by which you could see how it is the direct cause or could be the direct cause of diabetes and obesity and diabetes and obesity. If you're diabetic or obese, you have an increased risk of heart disease, of cancer and Alzheimer's. So the second and third to last chapters in the book are both called if-then problems, because if, if sugar sets us on this pathway to diabetes, which 
you could certainly demonstrate in animals effortlessly. It's a little harder to do it in humans because of the constraints of working with human experiments. But if it sets us on this path, then it also, at the very least, increases our risk of these other chronic diseases, including heart disease, cancer, and Alzheimer's. And people have to be talking about this, you know, which is one of the things that sort of, up until the last 10 years, if you talked like I'm talking now, you were a quack and a scaremonger and, you know, pick your derogatory term. And if you even researched these subjects or wanted to, you wouldn't get funding to research. You were perceived as sort of a quack because everyone knew a calorie is a calorie. It doesn't matter. And now, you know, again, what I've been trying to do in my journalism and now in this book is get people to at least discuss these possibilities because they're, you know, if not highly likely, likely enough that they should scare the bejesus out of us. Absolutely. And what you are helping us to do in the case against sugar, being the science journalist that you are, Gary, you write it in such an interesting and easy to understand way. It's not going to be science jargon beyond our comprehension. These are really intriguing stories. That's where actually you could really scare us into making a change. (laughs) Truly. Well, and that's what, you know, obviously the goal of any writer is to tell a story in a compelling way. Um, I tend to sacrifice, I, I'm, I'm a fan of science, and I have always been a critic of bad science. My second book was called Bad Science. But, uh, you know, there's, there's some amazing stories in here, and there's some great history. I mean, sugar's got an extraordinary history, and then... Um, talk about a checkered past uh, you know the basically the motivation for the slave trade was sugar cane growing in the caribbean um in the the 16th 17th 18th centuries um i mean just horrors were perpetrated in the name of sugar which back then was sort of the the you know petroleum the the oil the black gold of the of that era. Uh, fortunes were built on, and many of the richest people in New York City. I think maybe I'm being a little passive aggressive because I, re- I moved out of New York about five years ago to the, to the West Coast, so I like pointing out that, that many of the wealthiest families in New York got wealthy basically through the, the sugar trade and the, the triangular slave trade that sent um, slaves to Africa and traded rum for the for the uh, black slaves, and um, the rum was made from sugar cane, and then the sugar went north to uh, the east coast of the you know, newly founded United States, and they sent back the supplies and the, the uh, food stuff that needed to be um, the Caribbean islanders, these sugar growers needed to you know keep going. So is the history of this product. And what's also fascinating about it is when you look at populations over time, it's clearly the case that populations will consume as much sugar as they could afford. And so as sugar got cheaper and cheaper, we could afford more and more, and we consumed more and more. And you have to ask yourself this question, are we dealing here with a, a nutrient that just tastes good? Or is this the story of a drug? Um, and there's a 
whole cluster of what the anthropologist Sidney Mintz called drug foods that came out of the Americas after Columbus, um, including tobacco and sugar and coffee beans and chocolate, and they went along with the, the movement of other illicit substances in that era and kind of the stuff that empires were built on. And it's all part of this story of how we went this one plant originally from Indonesia through India through the Mediterranean to the Americas and then taking over the world and our diets and you know, this crazy health situation we have today. And to look at that health situation, because that is at the crux of a lot of this, all of it is so interesting. And I think that that kind of interest can draw us into a greater understanding. And then to realize when we look at the statistics and you show us these graphs of what diabetes was like, you know, in the mid 1800s, it was hardly a blip on the radar where and then it jumps like. A hundred percent. More than a hundred percent. Actually, yes. if you believe the CDC, now, numbers from the Centers for Disease Control, <clears throat> diabetes prevalence in the United States has increased 900 percent in the last 50 years, 55 years. Um, that's almost incomprehensible. So one of the, the, the question I'm trying to answer, the, you know, again, if you think of this as a, a legal a uh, case rather than a, a public health issue. The crime that's been committed is you have these unprecedented epidemics of obesity and diabetes worldwide. So as you point out, um, as I point out in the book, in the 1850s, you can go back and find the hospital records for major urban hospitals in the 1850s, and they have, they have years where there's not a single case of diabetes. And then from those same hospitals post-Civil War, you start seeing diabetes cases appear, you know, two a year, four a year, 70, and it just continues to climb. So you could see that epidemic beginning in post-Civil War America, and then you could see similar cases everywhere you look in the world. And in China, back at the beginning of the 20th century, there are doctors who estimated that there was, you know, one in 20,000 or 30,000 patients in a hospital in hospitals had diabetes and today the number is hundreds of millions in China today the number in the US is 1 in 11 there are some populations uh, native american populations first nations populations in Canada where one in two adults are diabetic so this has to be explained yeah, the conventional thinking, again, because a calorie is a calorie, is you, we say, well, you know, the diabetes explosion is blamed on obesity, and obesity, you'll hear this phrase, it's a multifactorial complex disease. And so it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's sleep deprivation, it's uh, too much food, energy-dense, palatable food, it's uh, lack of act, physical activity, it's watching too much television, it's, um, you know, the antidepressants in the rainwater. I mean, you name it, there's a researcher out there who's proposed this as a possibility. 
And again, all I do in this book is I say, look, you know, again, thinking of this as a criminal case, everywhere this epidemic happens, the prime suspect is present and newly present. So you add sugar to any diet and any, you know, reasonable amount, and you're going to get obesity and diabetes epidemics. And everywhere you get obesity and diabetes epidemics, there's, you know, a, a recent increase in sugar consumption. And, again, you've got this mechanism. You've got the gun that sugar uses to commit the crime if it, you know, it is indeed the perpetrator. And all these other possible suspects are what, what happens to a research endeavor when they ignore the obvious. And, again, that's the story that I'm trying to tell here on this, the case against sugar. Why do we ignore the obvious suspect? What's the evidence? How did the sugar industry help manipulate the science and the pursuit of this science so that we would ignore the obvious suspect, which was its product? And again, you know, what does the science really say today once you get rid of some of these assumptions that we've been dragging along for a hundred years and need desperately to be updated or thrown out? And that's where we need to be informed there's great education here we can do the research read the book make the decision we don't have to have our doctor uh or the government say okay this is causing it because they're not it's not going to overnight become uh, this uh negative thing in our lives so we need to take the responsibility for our own lives to be healthy well and that's what um the last chapter of this book called How Much is Still Too Much, and I discuss this question of, you know, can we do it in moderation? Can you, lean people will always tell you just eat in moderation. That's um, it's a little bit annoying because you never hear that from someone who's got a weight problem because somebody who's got a weight problem doesn't know what moderation means because they're going to get fatter even when they try to eat in moderation. Um, so the question is, how do you do it? Um, and what's the right amount for you? And is it better to go cold turkey, or is it better to cut back slowly? Is it better to try and, you know, just cut your sugar consumption in half and be happy with that? Instead of having dessert every night, maybe you have dessert twice a week. And all these things, of course, clearly, I believe any reduction is going to be beneficial. The advantage of we have in nutrition over other sciences is we can self-experiment. There's a long and glorious history of experimentation in nutrition research where researchers said, hey, I want to study this phenomenon. I'm going to change my diet and see what happens to myself. And then that will inform my research. So we can do that. And in this case, you know, ultimately I think the best thing to do is just to do it as an experiment. Um, and I'm kind of a fan of going cold turkey, perhaps because I used to be a smoker, and um, nobody ever tells you to smoke cigarettes in moderation or to try to get by only smoking two a day because they know it won't work. You know, we know cigarettes are addictive. Um, nobody tells an alcoholic to I'll just drink two a day, that'll be fine because they know they won't be able to stay at two a day. 
So I'm a fan of going cold turkey. I'm a fan of saying, look, you know, it's a day at a time. I'm going to set one week to go without sugar. And at the end of the week, I'm going to try and go maybe make it a month. You know, if you say I'm going to go the rest of my life without sugar, a lot of people find that too intimidating, the challenge too hard. There's a little voice in your head that's saying, I don't want to go the rest of my life without sugar. But if you say I'm going to do it as an experiment, maybe see if I can get to a month or two months or three months and see how I feel. And if I feel better and if I have more energy and I'm slimmer and I, I don't know, my skin's cleared up or my eczema's gone away, who knows? But see what happens. And then you can make an informed decision about the risks and benefits, the pluses and minuses of continuing a sugar-free life or at least a very low sugar. Although the problem, as you discussed, Kay, was um, because some form of sugar is in virtually every packaged food, um, to really give this product up requires, or you know, to give up added sugars entirely requires changing your habits, the way you cook, the foods you eat. Um, but you can still get rid of the clearly the bulk, you know, the, the major sources, which are, you know, the sodas and the fruit juices and the, um, you know, desserts, clearly, the, the pastries and sugary cereals, etc. Exactly. As you said, shopping around the outskirts of your supermarket is going to help you immensely. Well, and this is what I've always found fascinating. If you look at all the major diet trends, in America, again, we have these arguments about low-fat versus low-carb versus vegan versus, you know, ketogenic. Uh, they all recommend shopping on the outside aisles of the supermarket. Yeah, you know, they all basically say don't eat highly processed carbohydrates and sugars. And then the question you have to ask yourself is the reason people get healthier on these diets if they stick to them because they're not what they had do differently, but because of what they share in common, which is they tell you not to drink soft drinks and not to drink, you know, beers and not to eat sugary cereals and white bread, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, clearly there are ways we can improve our diets one way or the other. And if you start shying away from packaged processed foods, you will, by definition, start eating less sugar, um, regardless of what else you do in the diet. And if you try to stay away from sugar, you'll, by definition, be eating less packaged and processed foods, so your diet will be healthier. Exactly. And this is where the book... The Case Against Sugar really is, I think, a, a great tool, if you will, to become more informed, really get some of these inside stories, which are really so fascinating, and really establish that foundation for ourselves. As you said, it's a great way to conduct the experiment, see how we feel. And uh, if we're on, there are so many people who say, you know, they're just at the verge of diabetes. If that changes, look at what a life-giving situation you've put yourself into. Well, and that's the thing. We have a, a, a medical establishment that thinks in terms of treating disorders. So they'll give diet advice. Uh, physicians will, but they're not. Their heart is not in it. 
they're much better off at treating the symptoms of diseases after we get them and particularly diseases. Diabetes industry, this is a, I mean, there's probably half a dozen classes of multi-billion dollar a year diabetes drugs. And, you know, again, from my research and I'm a journalist, I'm not a doctor, but from my research, the first thing I would do if my physician was diagnosing me as pre-diabetic or another technical term for it is metabolic syndrome is give up sugar. And second thing would be to give up the the refined processed grain, the white flour and and the the grains afterwards, but certainly giving up sugar. And there's, there's a significant amount of evidence that you can in effect reverse this disease walk back from the edge certainly if you make these dietary changes yes absolutely again so life-giving and here's another wonderful opportunity you're going to be here later this week in our wonderful puget sound area you'll be here on friday evening january 6th at uh, town hall 7 30 right i will indeed i look forward to it and a great opportunity to hear an expanded conversation on this topic and uh, potentially ask a question that might be burning inside of you because of this conversation. Yes, that yes. would be great. Well, Gary Tobbs, this has been so interesting. I thank you so much for being the kind of inquisitive journalist, the writer that you are, and bringing such a fabulous book to us that really has the potential. It's the gift to be life-giving to us. So thank you greatly. Thank you very much, Kate.